the next episode of the In Development Podcast. My name is Mariah, and this is the podcast for all you city builders, city shapers, and city dwellers out there that care about driving change toward people-centered communities. On In Development, we talk about how Canadian cities develop in and up. We are presented by IDEA, the Infield Development and Edmonton Association, a nonprofit education and advocacy group that brings together like-minded people working to shape our city. On today's show, we have Sean Bowley, who is a senior planner with the city of Edmonton. He loves baked goods and he does want to open up a bakery when he retires, but for now, he works on implementing the infill roadmap and district planning, which are the things that we focus on in this episode. Before we dive in, um, there's a few things that we have to define. Um, Sean has a love of spreadsheets and comes from a little bit of a financial background, which is fascinating to me, Um, but he uses some terms that are above my head. So the first of those is cap rates. Um, Cap rates, for those of you that don't know, it's used in the world of commercial real estate to indicate a rate of return that's expected to be generated on real estate investment properties. Sorry, it's based on the net income, which the property is expected to generate and is calculated by dividing the net operating income by the property asset value. And it's expressed as a percentage. It's used to estimate an investor's potential return on the investment in a real estate market. Did that make sense to you? Um, I think it makes sense to people who need to know what it means. Perfect. Agreed. <laughs> it's very important. Uh, but I am glad that most of my work revolves around policy uh, and changing rules and regulations and not around spreadsheets. Hats off to Sean who likes them. <laughs> yes. Important work. Glad I'm not one of them. I don't yeah. think I'm capable of being one of them. <laughs> Um, And thank you for taking that definition. I'm going to do two definitions that are definitely more in my wheelhouse. Uh, So we talk about communities of communities. It's a term used in Edmonton City Plan. It's all about making a big city feel less anonymous and more personal. It's about welcoming new residents and developing housing, recreation, schools, employment in all of our districts uh, that can be better accessed through all forms of transportation. And the target uh, that the city plan has laid out is that 50% of all trips are made by transit and active transportation. And that 15-minute districts allow people to easily complete their daily needs. Um, So it's really about creating great communities. Uh, And then we also talk about 15-minute districts, which is a definition in city plan, but is also something that city plan took from other areas of the world. It's definitely not something we created. It's something we've adapted. It's small cities in our big cities, which allows us to live more locally, accessing shopping and amenities within 15 minutes. And it's uh, derived from a concept from an urban activist named Jane Jacobs. All you planning uh, people out there listening, you know exactly who I'm talking about. Um, And for those who don't, she has written a couple of fantastic books. One of them is The Life and Death of Great American Cities. She's noted in a few movies, um, and she really is like what most planners aspire to be. So it's a concept uh, all about proximity and walkability, uh, and it's seen in Clarence Perry's controversial neighborhood unit, which I really do believe Edmonton was built on. Um, so yeah, it's it's in cities all over the world. Yeah, I have two questions for you that came up from there. The first, 50% of trips made by transit and active transportation, are you hitting that target? I don't know if it's an individual target because I live and work downtown and I fill up gas once a month, if that. So I think I'm surpassing that target, 
But I know, uh, like, my parents are not because they don't live in a community that they can live and walk in that meets their daily needs. Um, So hopefully, like, together between uh, (laughs) Ali and I and my parents, we are averaging 50%. What about you? Yeah. I think it's the same. And I'm a little bit more seasonal. I hate to admit a little bit, but in the summertime and when the weather's nice, I'm out on the bike lanes quite a bit in my on my bike. So I would say in the summer, I'm well over that 50% of trips. I also take the train quite a bit to get downtown. In the winter, uh, I do take uh, I do take transit buses and trains, but I'm in my car quite a bit in the in the winter. Um, my parents are they live near Century Park, so there is in some ways no excuse for them not to uh, use transit. But they certainly don't make fifty percent of their trips by transit or active transportation. Part of that, my mom's in a wheelchair, so maybe the two of us or the um, like you said, the family kind of averages out fifty percent. So yeah, we're subsidizing everybody else that doesn't have 50%. Yeah, well, and your parents live at the end of a transit line, but shout out to Edmonton City Council who just secured funding to extend that transit line, I think two stops, right? To the park and ride? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. That's very exciting. I really wanted to go to the airport. So if I keep saying it, it will go to the airport. So I'm going to keep saying it. (laughs) Yeah, putting it on our vision boards, manifesting it, putting it out there, Take us to the airport, please, transit. And I know there's a bus that does it, but I would really like to hop on a train from my house and head all the way to the airport. That would be fantastic. Oh, it would. I also think it would help investment, external investments to our city, because uh, as useful as Calgary Trail is uh, and Gateway Boulevard, I don't think it's the most beautiful entry point into our city. Uh, but if people could take the train in, I think that would be much more interesting. I think uh, so too. But anyways, personal opinion. <laughs> I think I have an even hotter take than that. I think it's maybe other than the West End entrance, I think it might be the most beautiful entrance into our city. Coming in from the East is a little bit different. Yeah. So yes, by train, uh, definitely it, it, it has the opportunity to be a little bit of a, a more beautiful entrance. But yeah, we should talk about Edmonton entry points at some point in the future on these podcasts. Absolutely. Well, and like, I know that the city has a goal for another, I think it's another million trees to be planted within Edmonton. And I think entry points and that with the way you access the city is a great place to start with those trees. Agreed. Also, maybe the way that we're entering the city is all by vehicle right now. So yeah, there's there's some other opportunities there. Although, actually, didn't they just approve a bridge uh, across to Strathcona County, a pedestrian bridge last they week? Did. So It looks so beautiful. It does. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. So we are getting some of those connection points being a little bit different. So it's not just coming in, um, looking at our industrial areas. Yeah, 100%. All right, well, let's get into today's episode. So our guest today is Sean Bowley, who's a senior planner at the City of Edmonton. He had a very unique path into city planning. He discovered a love for spreadsheets and financial models while he was completing his graduate school at UBC, University of British Columbia, and through some consulting work on affordable housing development. With the City of Edmonton, Sean works on policies to provide affordable housing, community amenities from rezoning, and has supported the implementation of the infill roadmap and now works on district planning, two major projects in our city. Sean, welcome to the show. 
Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no worries. Sean, I got to jump right back in. Um, I'm on Urban Planner as well. I don't love spreadsheets, but you do. How did your love for city planning or your interest in city planning start? Uh, well, uh, I did an undergrad at the U of A in sociology, and um, I was mostly looking for what sort of career opportunities I would pursue after graduation. And um, that's actually how I got uh, aware of what urban planning was. I met some planners, started talking to them. And uh, after taking a number out for coffee and and checking what their life was like, I thought, yeah, I I could do this. I'd like to do this. But when I went to planning school uh, at UBC, you know, after the first semester, I thought, I still don't know what planning is. And and, and I felt maybe a little bit adrift in planning theory and, and praxis type conversations. So when I had the chance to take some real estate development courses at the Sauter School of Business at UBC, it was like, uh, it was a breath of fresh air because there's a lot of ambiguity in planning, a lot of complexity, and, and certainly there is in real estate development as well. But when you have a spreadsheet, it feels like some truth. You know what I mean? At the end of the spreadsheet, you'd say, is it a good idea to build this building or not? And, you know, here's the percentage I got. So no, don't do it. And, and that just felt definitive in a way that planning rarely was. So that's why I was interested in, in real estate development and doing that sort of analysis. Um, that's not really a core part of the job that I do now, but uh, it remains, I remain a, a hobbyist there. And, and every once in a while, I get the chance to to participate or do some work that draws on that a little. Yeah, for sure. I, th- I mean, I don't even think that I understand planning now being in the industry for a long time. It's so broad and there's so many different avenues that you can go in. My education was based in uh, more of the design side. So when I came out of school, I thought, oh, planning is just, you know, drawing pictures and designing these great urban spaces. And I was quickly met with um, the the reality of that, much like you said. So applying your passions is definitely, definitely key there. I want to know how you ended up in the position you ended up in then. Um, I know like having that financial background, you must have, or the financial analysis background anyways, um, you're a very valuable asset. So is that how you navigated to the spot you're in now or how, how much do you apply it um, to get to where you are now? Well, when I came, when I first got a job at the city, um, I got a job as a planner in the housing section. And, and that was mostly because I had a background in affordable housing. And, you know, when you talk to other planners about uh, land value analysis or those sorts of things, they pretty much all say, wow, that, that seems so valuable. Um, you know, what a great skill set. But then it, it isn't really something that we work with a lot. And, you know, you'll find plenty of developers that if if you say, well, we want the planners to be, you know, doing uh, financial analysis of, of their projects, they'd not be very happy about that. So, it's, it's kind of a niche thing. Um, so I started in housing and took a, a, a little job doing uh, analysis of reports in the department, which got me a chance to see what was going on across the planning department. And then, uh, yeah, we had the, a few years back, I guess this would be back in 2016, 2017, there was a lot of talk about uh, amenity values and, and how does the city secure amenity or public amenities through upzonings, through direct control upzonings. And this had been an issue going back and forth. The city had been doing some of this stuff since 2007. Um, That is, you know, requiring some sort of amenity contribution from developers when they did a major direct control upzoning. But we'd been doing it for a long time without any real rules around, you know, well, how how much of an amenity and, and what counts as an amenity. 
And so um, I took a job that was basically tasked with answering that question. And so the project was to try and uh, not to try and get more value out of development, but instead to provide some clear rules, something that's consistent and transparent um, so that people understand the game that's being played. I think there was too many moments when a project would end up at public hearing and, and a counselor would say, you know, like, well, is this enough amenity? You know, is this amenity contribution good enough? And, and in administration, we didn't have a way of answering that. And applicants would feel pretty nervous because they could always be told, like, we want you to do this additional thing, um, you know, right there at public hearing. So, yeah, that's how I ended up in that role. And um, that was a senior planner role. And, and sort of as that project wrapped up, an opportunity came along uh, with the infill roadmap. So uh, a colleague of mine here at the city, Hanny Kwan, uh, had led the, the creation of the roadmap and then he was moving on. And so they were looking for uh, someone to come in and steward sort of its implementation. And, and he asked if I'd be game to do that. And that's how I'm here now. That's exciting. You've been involved in the infill conversation for quite a while. Uh, starting back with the uh, affordable housing discussion and the amenity contribution with the large scale projects. And then the roadmap or well, the second roadmap was really focused on small to medium scale uh, infill development. How have you seen the conversation evolve in the public uh, over that time? Yeah, infill, definitely the conversation has changed a lot over the years. In the early days, in the days of the first infill roadmap, it seems like a, a lot of concern, a lot of concern coming out of the public around infill types um, that really aren't adding a lot of houses to the neighborhood. Um, you know, things like uh, splitting lots to provide two skinny homes. And I think that, you know, it was just so new at that time and, and for many develop for many neighborhoods, it was their first taste of any real change uh, for a long time. And so I think that it, you know, it really caught a lot of people by surprise and there was a lot of fear going into it. Nowadays, I think things have changed a little bit. I think enough people have seen these new homes and, you know, have met their new neighbors and, uh, you know, know people who have, um, you know, who've even participated in the development process that it's a little bit more accepting. But also now we've got, uh, you know, more options available. You know, um, you don't have to split your lot. You don't have to do the subdivision and do two detached homes if you're trying to, um, you know, expand the options for your property. You know, so now you could do it as a semi-detached house or, or a duplex or add a, uh, a garden suite. You know, there's just more options available. So I think we're seeing uh, a greater variety of small scale infill development happening. And I think those, those designs are maturing as well. And so people are seeing some things that they like that are being built and, and some things that they don't like, but there's definitely, you know, the design and quality has evolved over that time as well. Yeah, we talked to our last episode was uh, with a designer, uh, Brett Johnson from Boss Design, and he was talking about kind of the changes and the evolution from the design side and what people are asking for now uh, versus what they were beforehand. So I'm happy to hear that, uh, that you're seeing the same thing and how it evolves. I think that the info roadmaps, the first one and the second one, were so pivotal to getting Edmonton to where it is now. I believe it was uh, 2020 where we hit 28% of uh, development being infill development and bringing along the community, allowing them to have uh, engagement through the roadmaps, allowing them to work through some of those action items. I just see it as invaluable and put us, I think, put Edmonton ahead in, in so many of those conversations. But 
The second roadmap just wrapped up. Uh, you and I, Sean, just went and spoke about it at council. Uh, you from administration's perspective and, and me from ideas. There are some action items that are still ongoing, uh, but there are a few that I wanted to talk to you about here today. Action one was really about uh, prioritizing infill at nodes and corridors. And for those who are listening who may not know what nodes and corridors are, can you help to give a bit of a definition to nodes and corridors? Yeah, for sure. So the nodes and corridors are these areas um, that were selected as part of the city plan. The city plan is Edmonton's municipal development plan, sort of the main plan for the city. And uh, they are the places that you already go in Edmonton um, for shops or services or activity, right? So they're the places that look like main streets, uh, they're major roadways, their centers uh, that have things like universities and hospitals in them or other major destinations like regional shopping malls, etc. So the reason they exist and, and we created a name for them in the city plan is that while the broader infill conversation is about development everywhere and, and a lot of the things that people are seeing or the things that caught people's attention were was you know, development at the interior of people's neighborhoods. The city is trying to answer the question, well, where do we want the major changes to happen? You know, where do we want uh, the city to really transform and look differently? And it is in those nodes and corridors. So, you know, we intend over the, the life of the city plan to, uh, to support redevelopment in those nodes and corridors, you know, to see them transform to include more shops, uh, more apartments, uh, more activity. And, uh, you know, as even changes to the street design that's going to support those places being real places and not just a road that you you drive through on your way to whatever your destination is. Yeah, it's like when you go traveling and you visit other cities that may have districts or um, places that you could walk around and eat or, or uh, visit, shop, those are their, what nodes and corridors feel like. Uh, maybe you don't know what a node and corridor is, but it, it definitely has a feel to the area. Yeah, and the city plan looks way out into the future, you know, to us growing to 2 million people. And so the nodes and corridors that are selected right now don't all look the same. Um, there's some that you'll look at and be like, okay, I see this, you know, it's it's White Ave, it's 118th Avenue, it's 124th Street. And you say, it already has that high street sort of character. But then there's others that are, you know, out in more suburban areas that you say, well, this is just a big road, you know, and it's harder to imagine how that space is going to change over time. But I think we need to be patient and give those areas time. You know, those aren't where a lot of redevelopment is happening right now. And yes, there'll be lots of changes that would need to happen to, to turn those into, you know, successful urban places. But we have we have time to work towards that. Yeah, they serve the neighborhood in different ways. And I think they bring the amenities to the people um, and that's why they won't all look the same because not all areas of the city serve the same people. They need to be tailored and a little bit custom. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There'll be a great, quite a variety of, of outcomes, but you know, the city, at least with the city plan and, and in the works for the work that's happening with district plans is trying to focus attention and opportunity in those nodes and corridors and trying to get them uh, into lively places that, that meet the needs of the people who live nearby and, and attract uh, visitors and investment. 
So, I mean, that's a really good segue there, Sean. Um, one of the actions from the infill roadmap, the second one was action 15, which is developing a process to review and update or retire plans and policies that are not aligned with current policy and regulations. This is your work directly now, correct? This work uh, is happening over time. Uh, and a, a lot of it was done uh, just last year, led by um, a colleague of mine, Anne Hazinga, and, and a team of planners here. Um, so I've, I've got to give credit to them. But part of the city plan, the thinking behind the city plan is we don't just need one new plan. Uh, we need to update our planning system. Uh, Edmonton has a lot of plans. You know, they are sort of developed in waves uh, depending on what was going on in that era. So you have a whole bunch of plans from a particular era of the 1980s. And we have plans from before then as well. Uh, and a lot of those plans, you know, have remained on the books in spite of not being particularly relevant to what's to the conversation in in those neighborhoods now so the city did repeal um, or, or remove 75 plans um, which is a big deal uh, that's a lot of plans it's a lot of work for context you know the city had um, over 200 of these so there's many more plans that remain in effect but doing this Updating our planning system is something that haps, happens, you know, pretty imperceptibly for most people, like whether or not you have a plan, because there are also lots of neighborhoods that don't have a plan. And, you know, like Bonnie Dune is an example of a neighborhood that doesn't have a plan, but stuff is happening there. So for a lot of people, it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't really um, affect their, their lives. But for those who work with plans regularly, whether you know, within city administration, or if you're a consultant or a developer, uh, and you're trying to bring a project forward to, to build, those old plans can be quite unhelpful. And I would say for the communities where those plans exist can also be quite unhelpful too, because they often, um, the sort of the specificity of those plans, and when they are created, means that they don't really align with the decision-making uh, that, that council is doing and the recommendations that administration is bringing either. So you can end up in a situation where people feel like they're promised one thing, and then when the development expectations of those plans don't align with what, what actually happens, it can feel like a bit of a betrayal. So yeah, so this is part of the infill roadmap, but really it, it, it starts you know there, it goes through the city plan, and it, this action does continue on because through the process of developing district plans, we are reviewing uh, all of the plans in the city and trying to answer the question, um, have, has this plan fulfilled its purpose? Does it align with the city plan? Could we take out of this plan some important policy directions to include in district plans and then repeal that plan? We're exploring that as part of uh, the district planning project. Sean, I think that's, that's a great example of why this work is so needed is to help bring everyone onto the same page. You mentioned district planning, and I think for those who are highly engaged in the planning process, they know what district planning is. But for those who are listening, can you give a bit of an overview of what is district plan? What is it trying to achieve? Yes. Yeah, I got a bit ahead of myself there. So the city plan, uh, which we've talked about already, it, it divides the city into 15 districts. So it says, you know, we think these are meaningful geographies, meaningful areas in the city. Um, and there's 15 of them. And the city plan says, and we should be doing planning at this scale, right? Um, so a district uh, contains multiple neighborhoods and every part of the city is within a district. And that's pretty much what we know from, from the city plan. And we also know that the city plan 
um, has the goal of trying to help us become a community of communities where you can meet your needs within 15 minutes of, of where you live, right? So that means you can, you know, buy groceries and find daycare and, and other things, and those things will be accessible uh, for you no matter where you are in the city. So district plans is our attempt to fulfill the direction of the city plan to prepare geographic plans uh, for each of these districts. And that th those plans will help people, will communicate to people what the city's intentions are uh, for that district. So that'll talk about land use, like what kinds of land use the city expects or, or encourages within that area. It'll talk about mobility. So it will talk about where's the city uh, planning to build new bike routes or new mass transit lines, uh, et cetera. So the end objective is that uh, when the project is complete, every part of the city will have uh, a district plan um, that will be able to answer those questions and communicate the city's intentions in a way that supports the outcomes of the city plan. And, you know, I'm happy to talk more about it. It's a project I'm most involved with right now. So we can we want to discuss it further. I'm happy to go there. Yeah. So, I mean, our plans, you mentioned that a lot of these plans uh, come from different eras and they're really old. I think about two plans, actually. Uh, Garneau had an area redevelopment plan and then Alberta Avenue, which I believe has been repealed since then. They were approved in the same year, I think in the 70s or something. And they were based off demographics of, of the time in the neighborhood. Alberta Avenue's uh, plan never really got updated. So every development decision was still being based on those like 1979 demographics and policies and decisions and everything, whereas Garneau's got updated a little bit more. So I'm definitely in, in favor and, uh, and believe that kind of amending or updating these plans to reflect current conditions makes a ton of sense. But not all the plans are old. There's a couple plans I think of. I live in McKernan and we have uh, the McKernan uh, Belgravia ARP, which was, um, I think, adopted in 2014. Uh, a lot of that was done at the grassroots level. Our community leagues got heavily involved in that. How are we going to balance some of these newer plans that differ from city plan in terms of the policy, especially when they were created from some really remarkable grassroots efforts? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and I should be clear that, you know, we're, we're, we don't think that through district planning, we'll repeal all of the, the remaining plans across the city. We have to look at each plan, you know, one at a time and look at what, what it contains and what it, what it says. And, you know, a lot of plans, you know, things have changed and a lot of things have remained the same. The opportunity with district planning becomes we can look at if we're creating these district plans, that give guidance across the whole city. And, and to be clear, uh, district plans are not being created out of, we're not creating like a new vision for the city. We're not deciding some sort of new direction or answering question, what do we want to become? Instead, we're actually just consolidating uh, information from existing plans and guidelines, existing directions, sort of decisions that have already been made, um, including in the city plan to try and give a, to create a document that describes how the city is intending to redevelop. Uh, and in many cases that aligns with, with existing plans in effect. When we look at those existing plans in effect, the question that we're really asking ourselves is, is this doing something unique and different from what district plans can provide? And if that's the case, uh, say for example, plans that have uh, a lot of detail, plans that are current um, and have direction that you know this still hasn't been done, 
um, like you know specific infrastructure upgrades. District plans, there, there's no point in repealing those plans. Uh, they're active, they're meaningful, and they should remain in place. District plans is an opportunity for us to look for plans that uh, you know, are, are mostly outdated or they don't provide something new and additional and unique. Or in a lot of cases, there's just a few remaining policies where you say, okay, well, this plan, you know, things have already happened in this area, but there's a few things here that are really important uh, and need to live on. In those cases, our project is um, basically copying and pasting those policies in, into the district plan so that the policies continue to, to remain in place but the original plan that they came with can be uh, retired. No, that makes a lot of sense. And then because you're shrinking the number of districts, how do you kind of balance different neighborhoods that might be different? For example, I'll, I'll go back to the McKernan example. Our district includes like Strathcona or Queen Alex, which are neighboring communities, but um, don't have the same ARP policy that we have. So is it kind of a weird balance to pick which policies to include or is it about making everything a little bit more broad or what's what's the thought there? No, I don't think the plans are going to, you know, homogenize all areas together. Um, the district plans are going to have uh, a document that accompanies them that we're very creative people. So we call it the district general policy. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no great marketing leads within the team. But what it does is it uh, it provides sort of like a common policy baseline for things that are true across the city, um, and a lot of a lot of the policy the planning policy direction that we use um, is quite broad and general um, and applies in many different neighborhoods. But that doesn't mean that it leads to neighborhoods looking exactly the same or having the same outcomes uh, because planning just doesn't prescribe outcomes so specifically to have that sort of an impact, right? So you'll still have neighborhoods that the look and feel of them are unique because the era they were built in and many other factors. So district plans are, are, are at a pretty high level. Um, they're not going to set any, you know, brand new direction for what neighborhoods should become or, or pick which neighborhoods are going to be the nice ones or the not nice ones or anything like that. They're going to operate at a, at a higher level than that. And the truth is, you know, we talked, you talked about um, McKernan Belgravia, um, you know, having a very grassroots process to create it. You know, as I've described district plans, they're not that same type of plan. They don't have that same level of grassroots engagement, and they're not tackling the same sorts of fundamental questions that some of those neighborhood plans are, are creating. So we acknowledge that, you know, at the end of this project, even when there are district plans everywhere around the city, there's still going to be specific planning issues that are unique to certain parts of the city uh, or are, you know, really consider a niche issue or a specific issue that our project is not going to answer. But that's okay. Our project is not the end of planning. Uh, it's not the end of, of talking with and working with communities. And I think we're going to hear from people across the city a whole bunch of those concerns where they'll say, well, what about this issue? Um, you know, this has been going on for some time and, and, and we want some changes to this. Our project team is going to, to say, you know, that that's outside of the scope of our project, but that's exactly what we need to hear. Because on the other end of this, the city is going to have to make decisions about well, what are the pressing issues that that need that sort of grassroots, uh, in-depth uh, community participation to address. Right. Because that that's a fundamental part of planning and can't be done through a, a, you know, a broad project like uh, I've described, the current district planning project. For sure. Yeah, no, thanks for clarifying there, for sure. And I think just to um, kind of clarify a little bit further, th this 
project is just implementing city plan, right? Like a lot of these old ARPs were completed under different visions and different policy that kind of uh, had the direction of Edmonton going differently than than the direction we're in now. So is, is that kind of accurate that district planning is is just kind of the next level on uh, on implementing city plan? Yeah, that's that's very much the case. Plans, statutory plans exist in a hierarchy. So the city plan is is sort of the top plan for for all of the city. And so, you know, if you have a local plan that in some case, you know, is clearly not aligned with the city plan, the fact of the matter is whatever policy existed in that plan that doesn't align with the city plan is already defunct because uh, all plans need to need to conform with the city plan. And that's our sort of our highest level plan. So district plans are an opportunity for us to get a little bit more specific. So to give you an example, if anyone looks at the city plan, we'll find there are a bunch of nodes and corridors. And those nodes and corridors are just lines and circles drawn on a, a, a very, you know, high scale map of the city. So people are left with questions like, well, is my, is my property in or out of that node or that corridor? Um, and the city talks about, you know, how things will redevelop over time, but it's the city plans looking all the way up to 2 million. District plans are a chance for us to clarify and say, well, these are the boundaries and, and these are the places where um, we're planning for these types of changes to happen sooner. So at, the city plan breaks the city out into four phases, the development to 1.25 million, then the next quarter million, et cetera, to 2 million. District plans are just going to focus on the next quarter million people that come to Edmonton. So it's going to be a little bit more geographically specific. It's going to be a little more connected to where we are right now in time. Uh, and it's going to basically fill in some of the gaps where the city plan says, okay, I see what we want to be overall, but how can we um, you know, get to the point where we have a document that informs development decisions, which the city plan does, but leaves many questions unanswered. For sure. And then uh, your work is kind of running in lockstep with the zoning bylaw renewal project, which is kind of the next step down on that hierarchy that you're talking about. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. The zoning bylaw renewal initiative, uh, you know, it's we've been talking about it for uh, for many years and, and it is uh, in full swing. So both of our projects are trying to align very closely and make sure we're using the same language, the same principles. And so at, at the and, and they all fall within these two projects, along with others, fall under the umbrella of city plan implementation. So, um, you know, when we go talk to people about our projects, most people don't care about the specific, you know, how the city administration sort of divvies up projects and labels them. Um, they have questions that span everything from, you know, plans and zones and incentives. And so all of those things really are just part of implementing the city plan. How do we take the direction the city plan gave us and orient our all of our work around it. Can you give, I know we're in the middle slash early phases of district planning. Do you have timelines for people that they should, or do you have a website uh, that they should know about? Yep, yep. If you, I mean, if you just Google district planning Edmonton, it'll definitely be the first result, but edmonton.ca slash district planning is our project's website. Uh, we have materials up there and have for, for a while now. Um, so if you want to go look at, uh, you know, some some draft materials and find out what we think this looks like, um, you can go there for a closer look. There's more information presenting the project and what it is and how it works. 
Uh, right now, we're just developing our plans to do our, our major engagement that is going to be happening, uh, starting on some of the, the general stuff uh, in June, but is going to go all the way into the fall. So we don't have uh, specific events posted on the website yet, but we will once we, we have booked those, those events. We'll be doing a variety of both online engagement and actually going out, uh, talking to communities, going to each of the the 15 districts to hear from people about the work that we're doing. I'm really excited about these projects because I think when some of our area redevelopment plans were created, we didn't have the same need and focus that we do now on the environment and on housing options. And I think that there's a real opportunity now to dive into both of those conversations uh, because unfortunately we're in a climate crisis. And so a lot of our decisions need to be more climate focused. So you and Jason, one of our past guests, got into a really, you were both part of a really interesting project at the City of Edmonton, the Missing Middle Design Competition. And then you co-wrote an article about the findings and the results. Is that true? Yeah. And that, uh, I got to give credit to Jason. That was mostly him. I mean, he he was the the, the lead behind the, the design competition itself and the person who, you know, is looking to go beyond just that basic work and say, well, what can we learn from this experience? And maybe we could publish something on it. Uh, and I was just happy to participate. That study was about drawing some inferences from the pro formas that were collected as part of that project. So I guess for context, if anyone listening doesn't know, the city ran uh, a design competition. There are uh, a number of parcels, I think it's five parcels uh, in the Spruce Avenue neighborhood um, that were acquired, I believe, as part of the Metro Line LRT project and then were surplused. And so there are these five lots that were made up a great infill site. And the city said, let's uh, let's see what ideas people have for some creative infill development at the site. And um, I'm sure you've got background from him on this, but that's, that's the context. As part of the competition, we asked uh, everyone to submit, among other things, um, a pro forma so that we could evaluate uh, the financial feasibility of their proposals. Because the winning proposal, you know, we wanted to make a deal, sell the land to and see it actually get built, not just have it be an ideas competition. Uh, so when all was said and done, we had uh, 30 pro formas lying around. Um, and we said, well, let's let's dive into this data and, and see if we can learn anything about what what works and what doesn't work for this type of infill development in Edmonton. Yeah, I thought the competition was fantastic because of that depth. Um, like you said, it wasn't just presenting ideas and picking whoever had the best idea. In that article, I'm very happy that you published <laughs> not everyone's pro forma, but the summary of everyone's pro forma, basically. And the range of, I mean, the construction costs and the type of dwelling, uh, the rental versus the ownership, the tenure, I guess, how many stories, um, at the gross building area, like it, it differed so much. How were you able to kind of parse that down and kind of establish a few key learnings from that with such big variability in the data collected? Yeah, um, you know, the, the study that we published you know, is it super groundbreaking? Uh, you know, if we came up with really dramatic or surprising results, you know, we have to be pretty cautious because it's a, you know, it's a small sample. Um, and it was tricky to work with the data because we didn't provide applicants with a template to work with. So everybody's pro forma looks different. Uh, if you've looked at, at different pro formas, everyone does them a little bit different. Um, 
you don't know exactly where they're getting their assumptions from. You know, fortunately, Jason was able to talk with, with some of the folks and ask them about some of those assumptions. But it was a bit of a slog because we had to standardize certain things like to say, okay, well, you know, we're going we're gonna to apply one uh, capitalization rate to all of these. So some things we had to standardize, like we had to say, okay, we're going to assume one land value because it's the same piece of land um, and, and you all have the same opportunity. And we're going to assume for rental projects, you know, one, one capitalization rate and, and some other things to standardize the outcomes. So uh, you have to take some of what is found or what's, what was reported there with a grain of salt. But some things that stood out that I thought were really interesting is that, you know, there, there isn't a clear winner right now in Edmonton between condo and rental projects. You know, uh, there was a time when condo was clearly ahead. No one was building rental and things sort of shifted and in a context like the site in Spruce Avenue um, it the competition demonstrated that both types of tenure could work and you know even beyond that you know usually people assume you know the bigger the building um, the more money it's going to make right the, the more profitable it's going to be so so you've got to maximize and that's the only only approach is to maximize I thought it was interesting to find that um, there was a range of outcomes. You know, so the bigger buildings often had, you know, larger gross profits, but they weren't more profitable as a as a margin, for example, right? So there were cases where row housing development was competitive with with apartment buildings, um, and vice versa, and where you know rental could outcompete condo. And is it true? I'm looking at the data right now. Were there two submissions that didn't have a profit margin? They were in the negative? There was uh, all kinds of submissions, um, including submissions that were specifically uh, looking to develop as affordable housing. And so they um, they weren't focused on the profit margin. That wasn't their intention. Um, some of the negative results you see there is once some of the information was standardized, what had been a profit margin became a loss. So, you know, if someone said that, you know, if someone had put a 3% cap rate in their project, it looked like a real winner. But, you know, um, when you standardize cap rates across all of them, it didn't perform so well. Some others, even though the, the competition required that they price the land at 7 million or 95% of that, some used other land values. And so if I corrected that back, then it you know, it, it obviously didn't work quite so well. And, and I mean, that's because that's not because the applicants were bad at submitting performance. They were trying to do innovative things. Um, and I've never been a real estate developer. I, I like doing analysis on performance. But I think that any, you know, real developer who is pursuing a project, they always look for, you know, what is a, a sort of a, a niche or an advantage that they have that that means that the assumption that everybody else needs to use doesn't hold for them. Um, and so, yeah, in some of those, maybe, maybe the, the applicant knows something that I don't know, but some of them, maybe they were just being a little overly optimistic. I think it's fascinating. And I think, you know, do another one of those. Okay. Do another missing middle competition and do it almost exactly like that, because it was fascinating to see kind of the bridge between the great ideas, but you also have to make it financially feasible. And then having the, uh, the outcomes on your side, having you analyze it. I'm curious if you can summarize uh, very broadly or quickly, what some of the key learnings um, and lessons that you drew from that that might impact your work moving forward? Well, some of the key learnings, I guess, um, include that one of the one of the things we looked at is 
I, as I said, you know, row housing could kind of go toe to toe with with apartment buildings for that site under this this specific context. But uh, one of the things that made me reflect upon is that if if this site only allowed row housing um, and didn't allow apartment buildings, the site might be valued differently. So I feel like there's a bit of a cautionary tale about upzoning everything. You know, if you go too high with the upzoning, you can end up with a land price that discourages what might otherwise be the the best development option. Uh, so you might end up with a site that is you know, on paper is worth 1.7 million because you can do apartments. But if it had been, um, you know, a a 1.2 million site because it was restricted to row housing, you know, they'd be much more likely to find a project. Someone would actually be able to come in and build something in the short term. That's not a a takeaway that I can easily just apply to my job right now. I I am not deciding on zones or upzoning parcels of the city. But um, I think it does tell us that, you know, not all development is going to, to fit a certain mold and be a, a very specific type that we expect. You know, if, if you think if we just get the right zoning in place, we'll get, you know, mixed use apartment buildings with retail on the floor. It's just not going to work everywhere. Right. Uh, so we need to be open to other outcomes. And uh, the other thing that I thought was interesting, I, I didn't draw on it in the study, but like I said, the, the participants were trying to be innovative and, and come up with some exciting new approaches to doing the, the development. What, I, what surprised me uh, is that those didn't really lead to big changes in what they were reporting their, their construction costs would be. So we had lots of people who said, I do, you know, I'll do modular building, I'll do mass timber building, um, I'll build things off site, I will, you know, all sorts of innovative configurations. And now a caveat here, these are pro formas that they are required to submit as part of the program. You know, uh, if once you go to like, I need a pro forma that I can take to uh, a commercial lender and and convince them to back my project, you're going to get to a different level of detail and, and research involved. So maybe some of that stuff didn't show up there. But my finding was, even if people are doing very creative things like modular, it didn't mean that they could build it cheap. Construction still expensive. Yeah, that's uh, those are all really interesting points. Um, I wanted to pull on something that you you talked a little bit about the upzoning conversation. I know uh, in Edmonton we're not at that stage yet. Uh, we still have a lot of work before we get to that conversation. But what I find really interesting is a few years ago when we allowed for secondary suites and semi-detached uh, and duplexes everywhere in the city, we essentially don't have a uh, single detached home or single family home zone anymore in Edmonton, it didn't really change land value. So when we did it widespread and and a marginal change. It allowed for gentle density and allowed for more housing options, uh, but it didn't didn't have that crazy effect that some people fear around uh, affecting the market. But if you do go to the extremes, like in this site, the, those are quite different types of development. It did have an impact on what you could build. Have you thought about that? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not an economist. And so I should be cautious about, you know, remarks I make on the topic. I, I'm, I'm not an expert here, but the city is, is definitely aware of, of this concern and the consideration of, well, if, if there's changes to upzonings, it, it transforms the land value. And, and therefore, you know, we kind of never get ahead because it just creates a, a windfall in the, uh, for the landowner. And that definitely happens where you have sites that have a pent up demand. 
And, you know, all that's missing is getting the right zone in place. And then, you know, someone would pounce on that site and build what that zone allows and, and build to the maximum. Um, there are some sites in Edmonton where that's true. And, and that's why people are doing rezonings and go to public hearing every two weeks and, and see what's going on in that conversation. But it's also true in Edmonton that there's a lot of development rights out there right now that people aren't using uh, and that uh, the rezoning is really just a very small part of making a successful project. Um, you know, perhaps in a, in a city like Vancouver, once you secure your development rights, you know, that's your golden ticket to a successful project. Um, but in Edmonton, there's plenty of rezonings that have happened um, only to see the, the project not proceed. And now I can't speak of any individual ones because I don't, they all have their own story. But, uh, you know, if your project has received the green light from the municipality, but you can't get financing or you can't get enough pre-sales to, uh, to move your project forward, you know, that's, that's still a major hurdle in Edmonton. And I'd say probably the main hurdle in place for multifamily development. It's not getting your zone or getting your development permit. It's um, can you get financing? Can you complete those sales. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm wondering if there's an opportunity as our city grows, because I know more and more we're being advertised as one of the most affordable cities uh, in in North America or in Canada uh, to live uh, in a major municipality. So it's drawing in more people, more interest, more investments. Uh, we're building the LRT, built, we're putting in big infrastructure, like the downtown park, Rogers. I'm wondering, like, does that money start to come in to catch up with the zoning so that more of the projects come in? Or is it a combination of our DC2s, our direct control zones are so prescriptive that by the time you can get to a building, maybe it's some things still need to be, like some things need to go back to the drawing board to be tweaked. I don't know. I, I don't think there's a magic bullet, but. <laughs> well, I can tell you from the city's perspective that we would like to reduce sort of the popularity of direct control zones by offering better alternatives. And that's part of what the zoning bylaw renewal initiative is trying to do is um, have some standard zones available to accommodate the types of development that we're currently seeing through direct controls. That said, there will always be interest in, in direct control zones. It's a lot more complex, complicated than just saying, oh, well, a standard zone doesn't work for me. So they won't go away. We'll be able to provide alternatives that work for, for people so they don't have to go to the direct control zone because they are burdensome uh, for administration, for the applicant and for communities um, to do you know, your major development through that process. And then back to your, at the start of your question, you were talking about affordability. Edmonton um, does have some great advantages. I mean, I think if you just, the situation for each household can be quite different. But if you look at things like median incomes and, and median housing prices, Edmonton looks very attractive relative to other major Canadian cities. And so I think that's a real, you know, it's a real benefit to Edmonton. I think it will attract more people to the city uh, in coming years because they'll find that there's opportunities here that maybe they can't find in Toronto or Vancouver or other places that they would consider um, or, or perhaps even Calgary. Uh, and so I think that making sure that there are opportunities for new development to expand the housing stock, to welcome those households is, is really important. And that's what uh, the infill roadmap was all about, right? The tagline was uh, welcoming more people and new homes into Edmonton's older neighborhoods. 
we need to be able to do that going forward because the people are going to be coming here. The Edmonton is, is a very attractive place to be and to settle down. Yeah, I love Edmonton. <laughs> I want more things to happen here. Um, but talking about other interesting cities, this is not in a North American context, uh, but I believe you lived in Argentina for a couple of years. What was that like? Yeah, yeah. I lived in Argentina when I was 20. Um, I lived there for a couple of years and uh, it was a pretty unique experience. I lived there as as a missionary. So it made it a little bit different than your sort of typical travel experience. Uh, from a, like an urbanism perspective, it certainly gave me a lot to think about because the neighborhoods in Argentina are, there's much bigger contrasts between expensive neighborhoods and poor neighborhoods in Argentina than there are in Canada, even though there are contrasts here as well. So, you know, in expensive neighborhoods, it's all, you know, gated properties and, uh, and, and no one on the street. <laughs> um, and in poor neighborhoods, you know, it, there's, it's very lively. There's just people out and about and there's lots of small scale retail, right? So everywhere you go, you can buy your staples, basically. Uh, people are set up shops right you know, out of their living room window and you just walk up and you say like, I want to buy bread and diapers and oil and the newspaper. And boom, there you go. <laughs> you pay for it and, and, and walk back home. So that sort of experience was, uh, was neat to see. And, and you just get, you know, that convenience is incredible. When you come back here, I moved from there to Edmonton. I hadn't lived in Edmonton before. And I lived in, uh, I lived south of the university a little ways. And I was so used to just being able to, you know, when I got hungry, say, well, I'm going to walk to the store and buy something to make a meal. And then all of a sudden I'm, you know, 25 blocks away from a grocery store and I don't have a car. And it's like, well, you know, what am I going to do? I guess, well, what do I, have? I've got some minute rice. I guess that's what I'll eat for dinner. So it took some getting used to coming here and, um, and just adjusting to how we shop and, and, and move around the city. Yeah, minute rice cannot be as good as the food that you had in Argentina. <laughs> that is such a culture shock uh, from really great tasty food. <laughs> so nothing knock on minute rice. It's helpful when you need it, but probably not the, <laughs> the same what you we were experiencing back there. Yeah, well, it wasn't, it wasn't all fine dining back there either, but it certainly was much more convenient to uh, find a place to buy something to eat uh there than than it is uh where there's only supermarkets and stuff like that yeah and i think that it's a really interesting conversation because it goes into some of the planning objectives that we're trying to achieve the 15 minute districts how do we get spaces that uh people can walk to or bike to or or take their car uh to get the 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 things that they need in life and the things that they want edmonton i think has done a really great job of of starting to build those paths forward we're starting to see the bike lanes uh, expand and I believe this council you, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong Sean you're a lot more connected to council than I am they gave more money to bike lanes recently yes maybe I honestly cannot confirm or deny that I I that one might have just passed under the radar for me I do know that I think council asked administration what it would take to accelerate the uh, the development of bike lanes and so I think that's some work that we're preparing to report back to them on. So I think it's something that they're considering. But uh, yeah, you might want to run that through the, the fact checker. Yeah, we'll do the fact check after. <laughs> so one of the questions I wanted to ask is, how do we serve some of those small businesses, our local businesses in Edmonton that are growing? Uh, I think of one of the kind of 
precedent setting developments in my mind over the past couple years. There was this, it may have actually been in Garneau, um, that wanted to build a garden suite that had commercial uses as allowed. And it was a bit controversial, but it went through. And I think that couple that was building the project, they were looking to have a coffee shop or a maker space or something that could add value to the community. And I see that as as something that more and more people are want to want to be able to either build or retrofit as our city grows uh, and as small businesses need spaces at different rental prices. Yeah, I, I think that it's um, it's a very interesting conversation and something that uh, the Zoning Bylaw Renewal Initiative is grappling with right now. You know, zoning, it's, it's very funny the types of things that we're trying to accomplish with zoning in a way, because zoning, we're really using this tool that was not at all created for the purpose of creating innovation and or, or encouraging innovation and new opportunities. Zoning was there to keep things, you know, to keep what is there the same. Uh, and so we're, we're really trying to, to use it in new ways um, to try and do things like, well, how can we allow for uh, more opportunities, more innovation and changes? And the truth is a set of regulations is just no, never going to be as dynamic as, as the, the population and the sites that it, uh, that it influences, right? So um, we'll write a new zoning bylaw and it will provide new opportunities. And then, you know, the week after someone will come in and say, well, I want to do this. And no one has ever thought of that. And we'll say, oh, you know, we didn't think of that either. So um, <laughs> you, you can never get fully ahead of all of these, these possibilities. But when it comes to commercial opportunities, I think there really is an interest at the city in um, trying to make sure that uh, we're not restricting entrepreneurship or the opportunity to to do uh, to start a new venture or um, a new business, and but we have to weigh that against what people want from from neighborhoods in the city overall, right? I think people have a certain level of comfort with you know their neighbor running a home a home business, but you can end up also where you know if there's lots of traffic coming to your neighbor's house, depending on the nature of the business, or I don't know, maybe they. You know, they start a welding business and you think, I'm not so keen on that. You know, when, <laughs> when they were doing someone's taxes, that was different. So I think that there's a, there's, we have to balance these sometimes competing uh, demands and listen to Edmontonians as they tell us about, you know, the things that are important to them and what works. The other thing I would say is with the city plan, this, the, the city is committed to the idea of nodes and corridors, you know, that they're. They're places that we want them to become vibrant, active. We hope that, you know, in the long run, there there's people on the sidewalks year round, you know, that are coming and going and, and living their lives here. And so while we, w- we want to support, you know, opportunities for entrepreneurship wherever you own property, we also hope that your business will grow and that you'll move to one of these nodes and corridors and see that growth and the dynamism that, that uh, exists there and be part of that scene. Yeah, I think I see it as uh, similar to the the types of housing conversation that we were having earlier. There's like gentle density, which is in the neighborhood, and then there's medium size, which is in nodes and corridors, and then higher scale development in in your nodes. And it's the same thing with with commercial. They'll be really small scale, kind of like the person doing your taxes has a home business, barely feel that they're there. 
uh, but they don't need a big space. And then my brother, who's in Vancouver, excellent woodworker, uh, you don't really want him working at all hours of the day in uh, his garage. He'd be interesting if he'll build you a bench, but uh, <laughs> maybe not everyone on the block would get a bench. Um, okay, well, I know we've taken up quite a lot of your time this afternoon. I'd like to we wrap it always with giving you an opportunity to have a call to action to our listeners here today. Yeah, yeah. So I appreciate that because, um, as I mentioned, the district planning project is just sort of ramping up to do uh, public engagement over, um, you know, beginning in the summer, going into the fall. Uh, there'll be a, a variety of different types of engagement opportunities. You know, there will be open houses that are about, you know, getting some information. There'll be workshops that are like, let's let's do the deep dive and, and get into the details. Uh, we plan on coming out to different community events as well to meet people where they are uh, and hear from people um, who maybe don't normally, you know, aren't, aren't, don't have the time or inclination to schedule an evening to go to, uh, you know, a planning event. And there'll be digital and in-person events. So my call to action is uh, if you're listening to this, um, you know, come out and, and find us, participate in, in our events, um, get involved. We'll be putting information on the specific events on our website. They'll show up on the city of Edmonton also has all of the engagement that it does um, that they publish on a calendar. So it'll show up there as well. We hope you'll come out and talk to us. Tell us about what we got right. Tell us about what we got wrong, what's missing, what needs to change to make uh, these district plans to set them up for success uh, as a planning tool that we can use going into th into the future. I don't think you could have said it better. Uh, get involved. The community is so important to the planning process. So thank you so much, Sean, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. Thanks, Sean. Wow, that was so wonderful to have Sean on. I know with district planning happening right now, zoning bylaw renewal and growth management, there are so many different infill policies uh, changing around the city of Edmonton. And it's nice to have someone to come and speak to it before like engagement really kicks off. Yeah, um, he's definitely a very important person working on some very important projects. I wanted to dig in more on some of the financial stuff because I'm fascinated by it. And like I said in the intro, I'm a moron when it comes to it. Um, having that background, I think, is really relevant, but you can't even get around to talking about that because he's working on so many interesting things and important things. Yeah, and it's just nice to know that they're ha they have multiple people on each project with different backgrounds. Like, I don't know many planners that love spreadsheets and looking at the financial side. I'm sure they're out there. Yeah, no, I don't either, but I'm sure they're out there. If you're listening, hit us up, please. We need to meet. We need to, uh, to talk more because I think it's an under served, underexposed, underutilized. It's a part of planning that, uh, yeah, we need more of them. We need more of them so that so the planners like you and I, Mariah, can just go do what we do, right? Yeah, we're the dreamers. Let's bring the people like Sean on to help us. <laughs> yeah, to hold, to tether our balloon down to the ground, absolutely. Yeah, and then he did make mention that the infill roadmap had a tagline, which I had no idea, and I feel like I've read it quite a few times. But it's welcoming more people and new homes into Edmonton's older neighborhoods, which is exactly what it did. Yeah. They did it. They did it. It was great. It's not a sexy tagline, but it definitely is on the nose for sure, hey? Yeah. I think they were very upfront with what the goal was, uh, and they achieved it, and they surpassed their goal. So yeah. hats off to them. 
the last thing I want to talk a little bit about before we get into some of the other stuff is I really appreciate that Edmonton started to focus on integrating transportation and land use for so long. And so many other municipalities have always like separated out those two conversations. Mm-hmm. But to create neighborhoods, you need both. Like I, I don't know anyone who lives on a piece of land and then never leaves it or someone who just (laughs) (laughs) travels around the city in any way they want to, but never stops traveling. (laughs) Yeah, they are intertwined like crazy. And I think, I don't actually know, but transportation is historically something that's done by engineers. Um, Land use is something that's done by planners. And we just don't speak the same language. So maybe, you know, I kind of like the integration of it. And, uh, you know, transportation planning is one of those other avenues of planning that uh, we should definitely have someone on the podcast to talk about. But yeah, I agree with you. I think it's, you know, they're so linked that it's important that we now have a document that links both of them together in such a cohesive way like the city plan does. Yeah, well, the current head of, um, oh, they change the names of the departments all the time, but the current head of like uh, the economy and planning at the city of Edmonton, her name's Stephanie McCabe. She used to work in transportation and ETS, and I believe her background is a transportation engineer, and now mm-hmm. she's in charge of the planning department. So There you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Integration. Yeah. Um, District planning. We kind of mentioned in the intro how important it is, but let's put some numbers to this. Okay. So there are 375 neighborhoods in the city. Um, District planning is trying to establish uh, kind of what uh, Sean was talking about, land use policy for all of those neighborhoods and condensing it into about 15 districts. So what it's going to do is a couple things. The first is there's a lot of areas in the city, a lot of neighborhoods that don't have plans. It's, you know, when we were researching this, I was actually blown away with how many of them do exist. And a lot of them are infill situations um, or emerging infill neighborhoods that are just starting to, uh, to see some of the development pressures come into their neighborhoods. So you know, without a higher level planning document, they're just kind of left flapping in the breeze with zoning bylaw regulations and city plan, but nothing kind of establishing uh, certain policies for the district. So that's very important, getting some of these areas that don't have plans, um, getting them plans. Um, It also provides a little bit more detail than the city plan uh, and a little bit less than the zoning bylaw, which I really like. And it simplifies some of the statutory rules. Um, We have so many different terms and... uh, kind of descriptions of plans. So if I told you that uh, right now we have outline plans, area structure plans, neighborhood area structure plans, neighborhood structure plans, area redevelopment plans, master plans and land use studies, and they all do the same thing. Why is there nine, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven? Why are there seven different ways of describing it? That is actually insane. And I think it goes back to the problem of like needing to update and or retire or consolidate these plans to make it easier for communities who are living in that area, who don't know what applies to them, if they have a plan or not. Um, And it's just, it's overly complex and confusing. So I'm very happy that we have district planning because Uh, As you mentioned, a lot of Edmonton doesn't have plans. Some of it's because they never had plans and some of it's because we just retired uh, 75 plans. But even still, uh, only six were area redevelopment plans, so infill neighborhoods. Interesting. Yeah, it's not like we retired a bunch of infill neighborhoods. It 
was it was mostly other things. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it'll be just as cohesive as the city plan. It'll implement city plan on another level, and it'll kind of set the stage or work in concert with zoning bylaw renewal, which I think Sean mentioned in his episode as well. What do we need to fact check? I feel like there was a lot that we talked about, but the only thing that I can think of off the top of my head is um, some of the approval dates for the area redevelopment plans. I was a little bit fast and loose when I talked about uh, the dates that I thought that um, some of them got approved, so I had to go back. Uh, I can say that the McKernan Belgravia ARP was approved in 2013. I think it was amended in 2014, and that's what confused me, obviously. Um, Alberta Avenue, which is one of the ones that got repealed that you mentioned, um, that was uh, approved in 1979. And then Garneau Area Redevelopment Plan, that was 1982. So I think I was a little bit off on all of that. But yeah, that's the only fact check for me. Is there anything from you? I just want to say that was 40 years ago. So many things have happened since then. So many top 10 music charts have happened since then. (laughs) Like, I think we didn't have even flip phones at that time. We have smartphones now. The way people live, the way people work is completely different. Um, So while I appreciate that some of those uh, older plans, I think that they sit in the time that they were created and around the decade that they were created. So yeah, that's a good point. They do get amended, but I feel like the only thing that gets amended is the land, the land use concept a little bit, the policy and what everything is based off of. Um, I talked a little bit about the Alberta Avenue one in the, uh, in the episode. And I know that one had like very specific regulations about promoting automobile related uses because it was the seventies and 118th Ave had a lot of, you know, dealerships and gas stations and, um, service stations and that kind of thing. That's not really what 118th is any, well, it is a little bit what 118th is now, but that's like, how many dealerships do we need on, on that Avenue or anywhere really? Yeah, well, I'm I'm not sure that plans should get to that level of detail of mandating what type of business comes into your community, um, but allowing entrepreneurs in Edmonton to kind of flourish. So I think we should be focusing less on the use because back when zoning was kind of first kicked off in Edmonton, it was kicked off because they were trying to separate out stuff. So industrial over here, residential over here, commercial over here, institutional over here. Um, And it's made it so those areas are dead in certain times of the day and are really unsafe in certain times of the day. Um, And so that's why we're going back to integrating uh, Mm -hmm. because, you know, we want lively neighborhoods that you can walk around in and feel safe and commercial is no longer as like hazardous as maybe it once was. So yeah, it's time for time for a refresh. Yeah, not just residential neighborhoods and not just industrial areas. Yeah, absolutely. So I agree. Uh, I think a good example uh, that Edmontonians might relate to is our downtown. It is we have sixteen thousand residents downtown, but it's mostly uh, office space. And so often in downtown, our nightlife is not as vibrant as it could be. And we talked about it when we had Panita on. We need significantly more residential. uh, And that's why we need to integrate. But anyways, that was my extra rant. (laughs) The last thing I wanted to chat about was Argentina because I have never been and it sounds gorgeous. I, I don't know, Ryan, have you ever been? No, but I know that it's one of the only places on earth that you can find both flamingos and penguins. Holy. Let that sink in for a minute. Tropical birds, Arctic birds, or 
Antarctic birds, I guess, in this case. Yeah. That is awesome. Um, yeah, I just, I like the way Sean described it around uh, getting your needs met locally and that uh, small businesses were like popping up in people's houses um, and it gave people the ability to start and try things and meet their community's needs. So yeah, I want to see that in Edmonton and I don't want flamingos and penguins here because it's not, we're not native to them and that's not awesome uh but i do want to go to argentina and see flamingos and penguins there (laughs) there you go i don't think they're in the same area like you'll have to travel to like different parts of argentina for sure like it's not like you're gonna go to buenos aires and see both of them but maybe i just need to take a month off i think that's a good idea yeah you've earned it who are we shouting out today uh i want to shout out my friend jill she's from calgary she's listened to every episode of our podcast uh and she's an interior designer uh her firm is called design with heart because her last name is goodheart which is like one of the best last names i've ever that heard is a life. good last name my goodness yeah interior designers we should probably get an interior designer on this show maybe jill wants to be that interior designer and talk about calgary yeah well and calgary's context is not that different than edmonton but i think there is a very huge focus in, about design in calgary that uh edmonton could learn things from i think there's probably lots of interior designers that we just don't know about here in edmonton so if you're listening reach out to the podcast we'll get you on the show and we'll talk about interior design because yeah i think it's a fascinating and kind of wow i'm gonna struggle with the word again but uh underserved underutilized (laughs) i'm just going back to that but anyways we don't talk about interior design enough definitely it's a nice flashback to so if you made it to the end of the episode and you heard ryan say it twice hats off to you and meet me at the next idea event i'll get you a drink (laughs) (laughs) okay well that's a good place to dismount here so yeah uh go have a good weekend thanks for hanging out see you